Energy pulls northwest. that we can build a world-class power system. Power to the people. The Northwest is blessed with abundant supplies of renewable hydropower. Wind, solar, technology, innovation, climate change. Nation's largest fish and wildlife the program. The natural hydroelectric power resources belonging to the people of the United States shall remain forever. Energy Pulse Northwest. Welcome to Energy Pulse Northwest. I'm Kevin Wingert with Bonneville Power's Communications Department. I have with me today Dr. Todd Conklin, who is a human and organizational performance expert and a best-selling author. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start off with a, a question from a presentation you gave uh, earlier uh, this morning. Um, we had a question from the audience we weren't able to get to. Uh, and the question uh, is, what do you do when the solution to a safety problem costs too much? So that's a really good question. So the first thing I would say is never let great be the enemy of good. And remember, the powerful thing you guys have, and you really do have this, is the ability to micro-experiment, to prototype. So don't not solve a safety problem because you don't have money, although I would suggest that's kind of a misnomer. What I would encourage you to do is if you have a problem, ask the workers who do the work to help you solve the problem. So formulate the question and come up with the corrective action, the solution. But then ask them to help prioritize it. So ask them to give you three solutions, not just one. Give the immediate dirt cheap, I can do it now solution, right? Give the near term, a little more time, a little more energy, maybe a little more approvals. And then give us the Cadillac solution, a million dollars, 10 years to do. And then you have a data set around the same problem that allows management to determine really their graded approach to solving the problem. So we had a staircase in the plutonium facility at Los Alamos because it's inside a classified area, because it's in a plutonium facility. I, it would have cost I didn't say, millions and millions of dollars to replace the staircase, and it was dangerous. Our interim solution was to create an alternative way to get up and down the stairs, so the back stairs, but that wasn't very efficient. Our team decided they wanted to paint the staircase pink, right? So it's a pink staircase. You notice a pink staircase. I mean, it's just a hot pink staircase. That was a really good interim solution that increased awareness, decreased the events, and allowed us some little room to budget in and change the staircase. We eventually changed the stairs, but, you know, we gave them different ideas, different ways to solve it. Yeah. Good. Awesome answer. Uh, so I want to start off with, uh, um, first off, uh, you've had a lot of experience uh, both within the federal government, uh, working for uh, the government, uh, as well as being called out uh, routinely on incidents uh, and accidents in the, the private uh, industry uh, sector as well. I'm wondering from your perspective, what sort of feel uh, do you get from our safety culture? What are your oh, God, what a, That's a great question. So. Let me tell you a little secret thing. Be when you're in the boiling water and you're the toad, you don't know it's water. You don't know it's boiling, right? I used to think we sucked at like investigations and our safety problem because I always thought, you know, the the industry, the real world, they must do it so much better than us. They must be better, faster, cheaper, quicker. We're, you know, bureaucratically burdened. It takes forever to get a decision. The biggest lesson I learned is that when it comes to things like investigations, 
We kill industry. We're a million times better, a million times better, and have been for a long time. That was a huge lesson for me because I wanted to say they have everything. They can move quickly and make a lot of money. But in fact, you guys are in a position where learning is really valued. And to me, one of the benefits of being in, in, a, in a federal job like you guys have, or in a, in, on the federal side, is that the luxury of slowing down to analyze and slowing down to learn, that luxury doesn't exist in industry. They're so fixated, we gotta fix it, we gotta fix it immediately. So of course, we do way better event learning, way better investigations, because we have the talent, that's without question, and the time to actually be better. That would be my big, like that was a huge aha for me. Okay, fair enough. Uh, um, from that experience that you draw upon, what areas do you think the federal government uh, typically kind of weak when it comes to safety and maybe needs more effort or more attention paid to? Oh, that's a good question. So nothing comes to mind, which is probably a good sign. Um, yeah, no, it's, I, I think there's a tendency to make safety a little bit of try harder, care more. But generally speaking, on the Fed side, I don't even see a lot of pressure around that. So I, there's kind of almost all upside and not a lot of downside. You also have fewer accidents. I mean, you're, you're pretty good at being safe. And, and it's not seen as a luxury. I mean, you can afford to be safe. And so you guys are safe. Mm -hmm. So here at uh, BPA, we've been on a, a safety journey, I guess you would say, where you know we've gone through, made safety a core value uh, and kind of a cornerstone of, uh, of everything that, uh, that we do. What I'm wondering is, as that journey goes on, and you talked a little bit uh, about the curve and how it has a tendency to, to kind of uh, bottom out in terms of uh, improvement, and you kind of get stuck into an area, how do you... Asymptote. Yes, That's asymptote. an asymptote. <laughs> so how do you uh, encourage a workforce and keep focus uh, on... Um, continuously improving uh, safety and avoid either cynicism or safety burnout? Uh. Learning. So do better jobs at learning, ask questions, and treat workers like they're experts, not like they're the problem. So asking workers to care more or try harder, I mean, that's just not very meaningful. And it sort of implies, and workers are smart, it implies that the problems are workers. If you just tried harder or cared more, if you took safety personally, what? That wasn't that. I don't even know what that means. I mean, that's 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 crazy. That's like saying you should take office supplies personally, right? It's a work function. Um, the key is is to realize that the answer to all the questions are the people who do the work. And so, what I find is if you take time and ask people what they need in order to do this job safely, the answers they give you usually aren't very expensive, but they're usually brilliant. So, I guess the question I'd ask you guys is. When's the last time they took a procedure away? Right? That's a really good question. Are all procedures the same? Are they all meaningful? Does safety exist on paper or does safety exist in practice? And for you guys, because you're really adaptive and spread out and you got lots of workers working in different environments, I would actually suggest that what you count on, what you rely on, are workers. So asking them to care more, it seems like a waste of time. What I would ask is, what's our best procedures? What's our worst procedures? And how can we make it actually easier to be safe? 
how do you constructively challenge either an individual uh, or an organization who believes that they're already on the right path uh, um, to building a, a safety culture or, or they have a strong safety record, but the focus is more on preventing the accident instead of creating an environment where an accident can occur safely? So two reasons. One, as you said earlier, it's a journey, right? So you have to take the group where they are and get them to go where you want them to go. And it's kind of iterative. You sort of work along the path. The other thing is that you have to help teach through discussion, but really through examples of success, how important the resilience side of this equation is. You really manage three types of safety. You manage prevention safety, uh, you manage work execution safety, and then you manage resilience. And what happens is there tends to be sort of a bias towards prevention. If we work really hard, we'll prevent every accident. And what that happens is it's at the cost of the resilience side. So what you really want to ask, you want to change the question. So you ask workers, when you do this job, what will kill you or what will hurt you? And they'll answer. And then you say, when that happens, not if, but when, when it happens, because we don't have perfect systems, don't have perfect people, don't have perfect processes. When it happens, what keeps you from dying? And they'll answer. And then ask them the third question, is that sufficient? Is that enough? And what that does is it sort of breaks through the bias of prevention. And it says, we can't manage failure based upon probability. We have to manage failure based upon capacity. So like you guys are in an interesting position because the hazard you interface with, and there's tons of them, but the big hazard is electricity. Well, it's invisible, odorless, colorless, and it wants to go to ground. It wants to kill you, right? You'll never manage that by asking people to be more careful. You can only manage that by asking people to wear arc flash protection or to wear you know, dialectically controlled boots. I mean insulated tools, insulated boom trucks. Assume they're going to have the accident and manage for the consequence of the accident. And once you get there, actually, the, the real answer is once you look at where your systems are most successful, what you're going to find is they're successful not because they try to prevent events. They're successful because they prepare for events. They're ready for them. And when they happen, everything works the way it's supposed to work. So we've talked a lot uh, about kind of that organizational policy level uh, approach, and I'm wondering if we can drill it down to uh, a more of an individual level. Uh, what are some of the, um, the simple things that individual workers uh, can do to improve their safety culture? Constantly detect and correct. Keep doing what you're doing. The, ne- the next change in your safety program is not going to be at the individual level. The next change in your safety program is going to be at the organizational level. So the better question is not what could people do more of, because they're already constantly out there not dying, not getting hurt, detecting and correcting. The question I would ask you is, where are your systems most robust, where they have the most tolerance for failure, and how are they failure tolerant, and where are your systems weakest? Because those are the ones you want to identify. Look for success, because it's out there, but also look for places where you're incredibly brittle, where, where the potential to fail is really high. Okay. From your perspective, uh, um, going again to kind of that uh, that human organizational component uh, performance, what are the best ways to uh, to recognize and reinforce uh, positive uh, behavior from the workforce or from an organization? Tell success stories. So don't use failure to describe normal. Use normal to predict failure. So talk about how work happens normally and what's going on to make it robust and mature. But you gotta tell more success stories. Because right now we just tell stories of failure, 
So all we hear are stories of failure. I'd love to hear about a near miss that you guys were re- – the reason it didn't happen is because your systems are so robust it caught it before it had consequence. But ca- I'd caution you guys, don't focus on changing the worker. The worker is actually the solution. Focus on somehow embracing and engaging the worker so that the worker really becomes a part of this journey. They're telling you where you're good, and they're telling you where you're weak. It's a really good question. Ask a guy, say, what's the worst procedure we have? And they'll tell you an answer. And then say, why is it bad? And there'll be an answer. That should horrify you. (laughs) As soon as they answer it, you should be like, oh, okay. I'm getting on this and fixing it. So understand uh, um, you've got a few uh, additional interests uh, in life, uh, podcaster, uh, author. Uh, what are some of the ways that uh, uh, people who might be interested in diving in a little more deep, uh, how can they follow you? Uh, what are some of those outlets? So the podcast is really a good way. I have lots of books, and they're easy to – I mean, just Google my name, and there's a lot of books. There's a Pre-Accident, which is the big one. Then there's one called Better Questions, which is really on – uh, learning, uh, learning teams, organization learning. And then my last one's um, called Workplace Fatalities. And that's actually the first book to the market on workplace fatalities, which seems weird. Doesn't that seem weird? But it yeah. was. I mean, so it's totally like selling like crazy because nobody's ever written a book called that before. Um, but the podcast is, I think, the most fun because I just interview people and all sorts of people, like famous people and normal like linemen and just kind of everybody and I, I just mostly have a conversation with them I don't really ask them questions I just kind of figure out what they're doing so it's um, it's mostly listened to by the high performance computing people so like the guys that run Google um, Netflix those guys they're really into it's called DevOps they're really into looking at reliability and resilience and they're actually taking lots of lessons to, from safety into their operations so I don't really have like a, any – I don't even have a web page because I got a podcast. Yeah. got half a million listeners. How many you got? <laughs> um, half of a half of a half of a million? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so where can uh, people find that uh, podcast? Just anywhere. Just Google my name and podcast. I mean, it's, you can get – it's all Stitcher, every iTunes. Anything else you'd uh, like to add? A long-time listener, first-time caller. Awesome. Appreciate that. Good luck. <laughs>